Hi, I'm Olivia, and I'm on a mission to break the silence of domestic violence and sexual assault. This podcast is brought to you by Bolton Refuge House, which is based in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. At Bolton Refuge House, we create a safe space through programs and services for all persons impacted by domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and sexual assault, and advocates for social change. Today, we are going to be talking about how COVID-19 has changed the way the court systems are doing things and what that looks like for victims of a crime, specifically domestic violence crimes. One of the things that we will also tap in on today's episode is prisoners, because I don't know if you guys have been reading the news, some people are staying away from it, but one of the topics that I see pretty regularly in the news is that states are starting to release prisoners early. And what does that look like for the victims of the crime? What does it mean whenever you think someone's going to be locked up for so many years and then all of a sudden they're released because of a pandemic happening right now? Before we jump into the show, I'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsor for sponsoring today's episode. Allie Red Financial Services is located in Mondovi, Wisconsin, and without her support, today's episode would not be possible. If you or someone you know is in need of financial services and you happen to live in Wisconsin, I encourage you to check out her website. For more information, you can go to alirud.com. Okay, so let's jump into the show. Today we are going to be speaking to Bronson. Bronson is our legal advocate here in Eau Claire at Bolton Refuge House, and he does a lot throughout the day. Bronson goes to court with clients. He also goes and helps them safety plan, fill out restraining orders, file for divorce. He does a lot of different things throughout the day, and today we are going to be talking to him on the changes that he has seen since this pandemic has started. It's definitely changed a lot of what I do. The foundation of what I do is the same, um, you know, helping people with the court process, uh, helping them, you know, file, you know, motions with the court, you know, petitions for restraining orders, uh, you know, divorce proceedings, uh, all that kind of stuff, but it's it changed the way in which I do it. Um, so, you know, it used to be that we would meet someplace and uh, talk and go over all of the different uh, proceedings and, you know, I'd be able to kind of, you know, have that face-to-face interaction with them in a, in a secure location and things like that. Um, and then now with the social distancing and the fact that, you know, we're trying to mitigate the potential exposure of clients in the shelter and people who might have to come to the shelter to get services, uh, you know, most of what I'm doing now is online or over the phone, which obviously makes it less personal, um, but uh, safer. So it's kind of a catch-22 in that regard. Before the pandemic started, clients used to just come to the shelter and ask for the legal advocate, and we would either set up a time for them to meet, or if he was available, Bronson would meet with them right away. But now, since we're social distancing, things look a little different. Things are largely on a referral base. Um, so, you know, service providers in the community are reaching out. Um, and then, you know, when people call straight down to the shelter, they're able to uh, get a hold of me through the advocate on duty. Um, yeah, it's a 
little less, less one-on-one and a little more prep work that's going into it. Um, I guess in the long run, um, a lot of it's looking more like referrals to be made. The legal advocacy aspect of Bolton Refuge House has changed a little bit since this pandemic has started. We used to just get a lot of clients coming in, calling and asking questions, and then we would help them that way. But now Bronson said he's seeing that we're getting the majority of our clients through the legal advocacy aspect through referrals such as maybe victim witness or other agencies. I think this pandemic is hard on a lot of people, but especially victims of a crime. I wanted to know if Bronson has heard specifically from victims of a crime that he works with and what they're saying about how they're feeling and the things that they're going through right now. You know, for a lot of these uh, clients, they are seeing COVID-19 essentially put a pretty significant barrier between them and their children, um, or even between them and being able to even access safety in an appropriate way. Um, so, you know, we're, uh, we're seeing, um, you know, reunifications between parents, uh, you know, being affected by COVID-19. Um, children are being withheld um, from the other parents because the abuser is using the virus as a tool to, to essentially say that they can't travel with the children. Even, you know, blaming the other parents, you know, they're exposing the children potentially. For example, there was a story that made news headlines not too long ago, and it was of a physician who worked at a hospital, and she had children, and she was divorced. Her ex-husband thought that he should get the kids because she is exposing her kids to the virus, potentially. And in result of this, she has lost custody of her children while the pandemic is happening. The courts aren't understanding that a parent in an abusive relationship with another parent um, of the child can't just take the word of the other parent, right? Um, They can't just accept that the other parent is going to follow the law or follow the court order because the other parent has, um, you know, used the children's pawns so many times throughout the years. Um, So when the when the other parent is saying, hey, look, you know, um, I'm not going to give you the children back until the end of this, which we're seeing a lot of right now. Dozens of households throughout this county, at least, um, all counties that we serve, we're seeing, you know, victims have to advocate for themselves and, you know, ask the court for help. And the court is saying, well, no, you know, we're not going to intervene, we're not going to touch it. You know, the, the, the virus making it so that we don't want people to congregate. We don't want you to bring your support groups and support systems to the child exchanges. We don't want, uh, you know, if you're a healthcare provider, we're not going to, you know, order the children back to you. Several clients that I work with are, are either healthcare providers, nurses, things like that. Their children are being withheld from them. And literally, they're reaching out to court officials, and court officials are saying, we're not going to put the children back with you. According to the CDC, in the United States, there are over 18 million healthcare workers employed. And according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. 
I personally don't even think we need to do the math because those are a lot of numbers and a lot of people, statistically speaking, that are in violent situations and living or dealing with an abuser. Really scary, especially, you know, when we're talking about a service as large as healthcare. If we're looking at that statistically, uh, these abusers now have a huge upper hand in the court system uh, to use the other parents' profession as a, a tool to get them to, to limit their access to the children. And it's not because they're a bad parent, it's simply because the abuser wants that control, right? It's about, you know, being able to control the other parent financially, control their time, you know, control what people they date, things like that. Um, always having that leverage of, you know, saying, well, I'll keep the children from you in court in that decision, um, that, that's what's happening right now. And it's really uh, tragic because uh, ultimately these children are the ones losing out. Um, they're losing out, you know, uh, on precious time with a parent, and that parent is losing out. Another thing that you might have been reading or watching on the news is that there are certain states that are releasing prisoners early due to this pandemic happening. At Bolton Refuge House, we have many clients that we work with on a regular basis whose abusers are currently in jail or prison due to their crime. And I wanted to know if Bronson had heard anything from these victims that we work with, if their abuser has been released, and if so, how are they handling this? Several clients right after uh, Eau Claire decided to start letting Uber inmates go, we're reaching out and so the hard part about it was that in my mind I was thinking well you know why are these people eligible for Uber in the first place right I mean they're violent criminals you know convicted of battery uh, substantial battery disorderly conduct you know I mean domestic abuse modifiers so they they were obviously a threat to the community just in the nature of their crime and yet they were eligible for Uber in the first place and that goes back to show kind of how how the system assesses these people in, 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 in kind of the first place, even before the virus, right? These people were still eligible for Uber. Um, I mean, we've had, you know, we've literally had, you know, people convicted of stalking, literally, you know, getting out on Uber um, and violating that, uh, violating, you know, their GPS monitor, violating um, no contact orders and it, uh, or bail jumping. Um, and, you know, they did, um, you know, instead of cheaper than the probation, right? It's just kind of wild um, to see the, the way that the court responds to, to these people. I would argue that they're minimizing the severity of the issue and the public health risk that comes along with letting abusers go free. So, yeah, so when we, when we, when we saw this initially, uh, it was all about prevention, right? So it was all about giving clients a more robust uh, restraining order, protection order, in an attempt to mitigate the possibility of, you know, anyone else, law enforcement, probation, anyone, from not dismissing the victim, but, but, you know, kind of telling them, you know, hey, look, this is just the way the world is right now with COVID-19, you know, we have to do these things. Um, it, It had to be addressed in a way that gave the victim some power and an ability to enforce a court 
Ryan added that he believes that the system has failed to keep these victims safe and secure. Bronson also said that there was a reason why these convicted criminals were put in jail or prison in the first place. It's because they simply cannot be trusted in society. With COVID and then letting these people out, these victims were now, they were the ones in the cage, right? Um, not only were they having to self-isolate and, you know, not reach out to their friends, not have support systems, stay with them, you know, things like that. Um, now they had to think, you know, well, you know, whereas I used to be able to sleep and have comfort knowing that my visa was in jail, um, at least during, you know, the night, now they're at home and they're, you know, just having to check in every once in a while. When an abuser is convicted and locked up, this gives the victim a sense of security. And now that these victims don't have that, we have to put another plan to action to help them feel more safe and secure. So we started to see, see a lot of victims accessing us for restraining orders. I think I probably did about six or seven in that first week. Since the pandemic has started, Bronson said that they have definitely seen an increase in victims reaching out for help to file for restraining orders. Another thing that's increased is safety planning, simply for the purpose of Giving people a, a plan in place because I mean these you know these people um, these abusers they I think it's I think it's foolish to assume that they're going to follow the law mm-hmm. um, or court orders. I think they've proven time and time again that they are not compliant. I think they've demonstrated that they can do something as horrendous as assault uh, uh, an intimate partner or a spouse or a family member. You know even just You might be wondering if the state gives any of these victims a notification that their abuser has been released from jail or prison. I wanted Bronson to kind of discuss a little bit about that so we have a better understanding on what happens once they are released. Victim witness has been really good um, about uh, reaching out to victims in this instance. Uh, You know, uh, most of the victims who I've talked to who have worked with victim witness stands for Bind Protection Orders. BPO is a notification service that allows individuals to know when there's a change in the incarceration status or if there's a change in the case. I'm not entirely sure if other states have BPO or if it's called something else, but this is what the state of Wisconsin uses. You know, when they're able to do that, they're able to at least be aware of where the person is. They can even get notified um, if the uh, offender has a Agents. 
order that they maybe thought they didn't need a week ago. Um, because I, you know, some people, some people are totally comfortable with um, with abusers being on probation, right? They just want the abuser to have some supervision. Um, that's not common in my world, right? It's pretty rare mm-hmm. um, that someone is just comfortable with someone being on probation, but some people are. Um, so you know, if they if they you know if they have that security um, of of probation, um, you know, reporting the status of the abuser and if for some reason they abscond or, you know, if they're not meeting the requirements in probation, then at least the victim then has that information so that they can, you know, they can uh, modify their their world. Um, you might be thinking if these criminals have done something violent in the past or maybe they even have like a domestic violence charge or an assault charge or something like that, why don't they go ahead and put a restraining order automatically on them whenever they get released from jail or prison? States typically don't put restraining orders unless someone fills out the paper for them, but what they will do is put a no contact order on these individuals. You know, what we've seen from uh, non, no contact orders is that they're, that they're very subjective um, and the interpretation is, uh, kind of left up to, you know, the officer responding, um, which county responds to the order. Um, you know, I mean, I've had it where, you know, um, you know, City PD in Eau Claire is, is great about responding to a no-contact order. Um, and then they go, you know, into, um, you know, another county or something, um, a smaller county, and the sheriffs there, um, you know, uh, may not... Uh, you know, the threshold for contact was met. Um, I've had it where literally clients are at a restaurant and uh, they almost get arrested for disorderly conduct because they're yelling at the law enforcement officer to arrest the, or at least remove the offender, um, whether it was, you know, a sexual assault or a battery, whatever. I mean, this person had no contact to a, a, a criminal case and they're literally, you know, getting combative with the officer because the officer is refusing to remove the other person and saying things to them like, you know, well, if you're so scared, then why don't you just leave? And that's not the way it has a no-contact order is supposed to work. It's supposed to enforce the victim's rights and not be used as a, as a tool against the victim to limit their, you know, freedom of movement or freedom to, you know, uh, they, they're not the one who committed the crime, right? So then paying the punishment um, isn't reasonable. Unlike a no-contact order, a restraining order is more specific on what offenders can and cannot do. I'm personally a big fan of, of including a radius um, around the petitioner. Um, you know, nothing crazy, not like a mile or anything, um, but, you know, like a couple hundred feet, just to make sure that, you know, if that ever does happen, and because restraining orders are covered, covered under full faith and credit, which means that they're enforceable throughout the entire United States, as well as, I believe, Canada and possibly Mexico. In enforceable, uh, the radius would kind of take some of that discretion away from, you know, some of those, you know, different agencies uh, to where, you know, it, maybe they don't practice the same way we do. However, if the injunction stands in Wisconsin, under full faith and credit, it stands everywhere else. So they, if it says 500 feet, then, then 500 feet is what it is. And if it's at a restaurant, the offender has to leave, right? Mm-hmm. There's no wiggle room in that moment. 
even if they are releasing these people with no contact orders, I, I still um, would strongly advise anyone to, to reach out uh, for a restraining order just because there's so much more um, meat to that. When you fill out a restraining order, you will get a court date and then you'll go to court and try to get your restraining order granted. And I wanted to know if court has changed during this pandemic or do are things going on per usual? Court right now is um, uh, either over the phone or field conference, uh, which creates some barriers, right? Obviously, it creates some technological barriers, um, whether or not, you know, the, the victims have capacity to, to video conference, you know, obviously phone uh, conferencing is kind of difficult. Um, you know, we're seeing some um, older clients who don't have the capacity for video conferencing or phone conferencing, um, so they're really nervous uh, when filling this stuff out because they're, they're nervous that they're going to, you know, uh, get there the day of the court and have some kind of technical issue and that's what's going to hold them back from getting the protection that they need. Rodson says because of the changes in the court system, such as doing things electronically or through the phone without being there physically has created some challenges for clients. The actual court process is, is still, you know, it, 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 it's kind of unchanging um, as far as the, the actual procedure of it goes. But the uh, court has been really good uh, about reaching out to clients uh, beforehand and letting them know that, you know, yeah, it's going to be a, a telephone conference. Here's the number to call. Here's the time that you call. You know, so I'm really appreciative of them for that. Um, you know, the judicial assistants kind of having to, to balance all that and try to, you know, schedule and um, make sure to reach out to those clients when they do call um, and actually get them fed up. Uh, all that stuff is being really helpful. Even though a lot of kind of what I've said has sounded a little doom and gloom, um, just because that's, you know, unfortunately in the world of a victim advocate, right, it's all about, you know, kind of fighting the, the fight, so, you know, I, I sometimes forget um, that more, you know, optimistic approach, um, but yeah, I would, I would tell them that, you know, even if they think that, you know, services might be limited or hindered or the courts might not give them a fair shake during this time because of you know, the, the virus going around, uh, I would tell them to still reach out, right? You know, I'll, sometimes, you know, reaching out, um, you know, will, will help at least um, kind of create a, an awareness, right? So that victims know kind of what the resources are in their community, you know, whether or not something um, has to be done, you know, right now, you know, like a restraining order, a divorce, things like that, you know, it'll get them in contact with the victim advocates who can help them in their community. Uh, it might assist them when it comes to the other service providers, right? So, you know, DHS, you know, victim witness, other local um, organizations that deal with victims of crime. If you are hesitant to reach out to us by giving us a phone call, there are a different number of ways that you can get in contact with us. We do have a Facebook page called Bolton Refuge House, and you can send us a message on that, or you can email us at director at boltonrefuge.org, and um, we can get to you, get back to you that way as well. 
come and you say, hey, look, you know, I, I can't have you call me back because this is not a safe number. Um, and if you don't have the possibility right now of going out and buying a, a phone to have a safe number through, then, you know, trying to reach out through email, like I said, is a good way. Or even just, you know, telling us that we can't call you back, but um, that you'll call us back is, is something that we would definitely respect and not, uh, not violate that and not use that personal information that, that victims have given us. You know, I think this, this virus is probably a telling a telling sign that when, uh, you know, stress and trauma hit households that already have a propensity for violence, the cycle of violence really does become uh, a, a very true theory. If you or someone you know is affected by domestic violence or sexual assault, I want to encourage you to give us a call at our 24-hour, 7-day-a-week confidential hotline. That number is 715-834-9578. We have trained advocates here ready to help you. If you would like to send us an email, you can contact us at director at boltonrefuge.org. Thank you so much for listening, and I want to encourage you to share this episode with anyone that you think that this may help or educate, and together we can break the silence of domestic violence and sexual assault.